I believe we are live. How exciting. Um, so for everyone that's listening, I hope you can hear us all right. And um, yeah, Brian, welcome to the show. Uh, everyone today, I'm here with uh, Brian Class, the author of Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. So I'm really excited to have you here, man. Thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, no problem. Um, it's It's been... Yeah, your your book was was uh, as I mentioned before we started. I, I really really enjoyed it. It's it's a question like it addresses a question. I'm sure that we've we've all had at some point or or another, if not in the past two years, at some point in our lives, it's like whether power corrupts basically. Um, and you're going to hear a lot of my accent butchering the word power, because um, if you ever come to Northern Ireland, you will discover it only has one syllable. Uh, <laughs> so uh, why don't we start with uh, why you chose to write the book. Yeah, sure. So my, my background is as a political scientist, but you know I've been interested in politics and personalities for most of my life. Um, and and I think you know what what spurred me to write this specific book a- is that I did some research during my PhD and afterwards, in which I encountered some really awful people, right? Really awful, really powerful people that I would sometimes meet in their office, sometimes have a coffee with them, sometimes have breakfast with them. And it was a really unnerving experience to be in this room with someone who had done such awful things, right? But what was striking to me was when I come back and I would say things like, you know, here's this experience I had with this horrible person. A lot of times people would respond by saying, that's just like my mid-level manager, you know, my old boss, or that's just like this person I used to know who, you know, ran the, the neighborhood association. And so what I started to think about was, you know, is there a certain type of person that gravitates towards power? And, you know, how does all this fit together? Is it that corruptible people seek power? Is it that power corrupts? Um, and, And part of that also, I have this podcast called Power Corrupts. And so I'm sort of like, I wonder if that's actually true, right? I've I've branded my podcast this, but I don't know uh, if it's actually uh, the case, or is it just one of these sayings that sort of you know is is thrown around in cocktail conversation and at dinner parties and so on. So what I set out to do was to try to figure out systematically what we can figure out about who gets power, who seeks power, what power does to people, how it changes them, and I, I tried to take as holistic an approach as possible from you know looking at neuroscience and evolutionary biology, psychology, political science, economics, et cetera. And that was the fun thing for researching the book for me was that, you know, there's a lot of people who are working on questions that are relevant to this big overarching dilemma facing humanity. And yet, you know, academics tend to be sort of in their own departmental silos. And so I was reading political science work and not reading what we can learn from, you know, baboons, for example, or from hunter gatherers. And so that's what I set out to do is to try to draw in as much information as, as I could to understand the dynamics of power. Mm. Well, the one of the things I really, really enjoyed about the book was was the sort of different wild tales that you would you would be telling as as part of illustrating the points you were trying to make. It was for me, I, I kept it not that I would find this this sort of topic boring, but it kept it like so entertaining, and I never knew like, sort of where you were going to take us next. Um, like the one that I really didn't expect was the. The sort of cult that that popped up in in rural America. I can't remember the the town. Um, is it Indiana? I think it was. Uh, rural oh, Oregon. Rural Oregon. Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. And so, when when you came across that story, um, maybe just before you start with it, you can like give people like a brief um, sort of rundown of it. But how do you even 
start to go about thinking, okay, how do I analyze, how do I analyze like this individual's experience and, and see whether they were the sort of person that can be used as an example for someone who would have just become corrupted by any power structure or someone who maybe got lured in by this, this, you know, the situation that they were in. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's this chapter called power corrupts in which, you know, it is true, by the way, that the book makes the argument, the power does corrupt, but it's that uh, sort of tip of the iceberg, one of the least interesting and most straightforward aspects of power uh, in my view, because so many more complex, fascinating dynamics are at play. But what I wanted to find was someone who had a clear-cut experience in which they were seemingly good before they were powerful, atrocious when they had power, and then seemingly good when they lost power. And so I sort of thought about my past research. I actually didn't interview this person for the book specifically as much as I'd already had interviewed her, uh, but her name is Ma Anand Sheila. And she is the sort of right-hand woman to a cult leader named Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, this sort of bug-eyed guru from India, who was effectively kicked out of India in the early 1980s because of uh, failure to pay taxes on a lot of the receipts that the cult had basically brought in, this, this group called the Rajneeshis. And so they moved to Oregon, and, and Sheila was tasked with finding this location to set up shop, basically. And she bought this place called the Big Muddy Ranch in rural Oregon. And they had this massive clash with the townspeople who didn't like all these cult members showing up and sort of changing this tiny little town called Antelope's character with, you know, building an international airport and building, you know, thousands of housing units and so on, uh, or housing units for thousands of people. And so what ended up happening is this clash. The Antelope City Council tries to shut them down. She figures, we'll just run the Antelope City Council. We outnumber them. So they get elected and they, they, they take over the town. The county, though, they don't have the numbers. The county starts to you know, crack down on, on the Rajneeshis. And so Sheila comes up with this plot, or at least is, is part of this plot, to rig the election at the county level, which is pretty amazing because it's so low level, uh, in order to take over the county by poisoning thousands of people with salmonella. And what's amazing about this story is she ends up being the worst bioterrorist in American history because she helps orchestrate this plot to poison just under a thousand people who actually got sick with salmonella. Thankfully, nobody died. Um, but it was a test run, right? This wasn't actually the, the, the plot. It was, a, it was an attempt to see whether they could actually poison enough people uh, to sway the election results. And what's fascinating to me is that, you know, a couple of things happened to her. One is that she became the voice of a demigod, right? The, the, the guru at one point takes a vow of silence. So she's effectively the voice of this demigod to all these people. And she's also an enforcer. She's sort of the person who is, you know, putting her foot down on, on order in the society of this sort of cult group. And she starts to think about things in a very Machiavellian way. Uh, you know, she starts to not just poison the people of Salmonella, but is allegedly behind poisoning involving um, city and county officials, and was thinking about weaponizing HIV, a new virus at the time, thinking about assassinating various, various public officials, um, and also uh, had this bizarre plot in which she was thinking about pureeing a beaver and sticking it in the city water supply to poison people that way because beavers harbor all this gut, uh, gut bacteria. Now, I met her in Switzerland, and she was like this nice little old lady who's, you know, just about five feet tall, silver hair, uh, and is in charge of a care home. And 
it was so odd because, you know, I'd read all the court documents. Like I, I'd seen what she had done and I'd seen all the evidence and it's like unbelievably overwhelming evidence, right? And you're sitting in this room with the worst bioterrorist in American history who's now in charge of vulnerable people and the Swiss government has given her a license. And she's extremely sweet. Her residents love her. She's had no allegations of wrongdoing since. And so I thought, okay, this is a great case study where seemingly she just had this weird period in her life where the power went to her head and she became an insane, murderous person. And, you know, she's an outlier, right? It's not usually so stark. It's, it's, it's often the case that power-hungry people have personality defects that are much more profound. But she's a great example of someone who's prone to this, in my opinion. And then it just went off the rails when, when she was uh, in power. And she's clearly nostalgic for this part, part of her life in which she was in power. Now, the, the last part I will say is because you said, how do you approach interviewing someone like her or trying to analyze her? I mean, it's very difficult. And it, it comes up a lot of the time because when you interview people who do atrocious things in power, they never say, the reason I did it was because I was greedy and power hungry and I wanted to kill people, right? Yeah. They always yeah. attribute nice reasons for what they're doing. Oh, it was for this or that. They lie to you. So what you have to do as a, as a researcher is try to find ways in which you can, you know, sort of triangulate the truth. So I can look at court documents. I can look at interviews with people around her. I can talk to her. And then I can also look at the evidence. And that's the best way you can get at it, right? You can never figure out real intent, but you can sort of triangulate with different sources and figure out what really happened. And, and that's what I did with her case and with the rest of them in the book. Mm. Like in cases like that, do you think that, do you think that they're lying to you at this point? Or do you think that they're they're lying to themselves and and like that they genuinely believe what they're telling you you know you do, do, you know are they are yeah. they are they convinced that the the version of events that they are then relaying to you is accurate like is that is that the case do you think i think it completely depends on the person so you know i think there are d definitely some highly manipulative machiavellian personalities who do not care about what they're doing in power and simply think that lying to someone like me will put a nicer sheen on it and perhaps you know they'll 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 be able to sort of get away with it or they won't get condemnation in a book or a washington post column or my podcast whatever it is right now the the problem with that is that of course some people start telling those lies and then start believing them uh and then other people are genuinely delusional um and man and Sheila is actually a great case study in this because i i confronted her i said like you know when you start these interviews, by the way, and this is one of the things that I've, I've learned when you're talking to somebody who's done some horrible stuff, like the first question out the gate is not like, so why did you poison a thousand people? Because of course, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to get the person to open up to you and you're not going to get anything useful uh, from the interview. Mm -hmm. Instead, you sort of chat and, and converse. So towards the end, of the end of the interview, I said, look, you know, Sheila, I've got in front of me uh, these documents that quite clearly show all these things that you did. And it's you know it, it's because she continues to deny this by the way right yeah. even though she's been convicted and the evidence is incredibly overwhelming and i said you know i don't know how to respond i explicitly said to her I, like, I don't know how to respond to you because i think you're a person who comes off as very nice but at the same time i'm looking at this overwhelming evidence against you it's clearly not fabricated right this is like there's like dozens of different pieces of evidence that are impossible to explain away and you're telling me it's all a lie so how am I supposed to deal with that? And she just said, it's up to you to make of it what you will, right? And I thought to myself, like, she she has to know 
but she also does seem a little bit delusional. And there's other people who are in politics or business who I talk to who, you know, I don't know, they, it's impossible to know what's going on in their head. And some of it, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a really ethically difficult thing to deal with because like, let's imagine she has mental illness. I don't know if she does. I'm not a psychologist, but then, you know, the ethical claims around this uh, become slightly more different. You know, they, they become slightly different. Or like if you're dealing with a psychopath, one of the things I don't talk about at length in the book, although I do deal a lot with psychopaths is, you know, when I talk to these people who are psychopath experts, they'd say, look, their brains are actually broken. Like their, their, their brain doesn't operate correctly. So then you think, okay, like, how do we adjudicate the moral responsibility? Like, are you actually responsible for something if you were born with a defective brain that doesn't process emotion properly? Hmm. You know, and, and that's one of the things that's so difficult about this when you're writing judgments about people and trying to determine, is this person like a rotten individual or are they just the product of a rotten system? Yeah. And that's why, you know, this book was very difficult um, to try to get right. And I just sort of did my best uh, making the assessments based on the evidence that I had. Hmm. Well, I, I yeah commend you for the for taking it uh, to the to the places you did. It's uh, yeah, it was really really insightful. So um, I probably I, I I know it says it's a, an advanced copy, but I definitely quoted you several times in podcasts um, before this one <laughs> um, while I was reading it to people. Um, but the, so you mentioned the the psychopath element of things, and and. One of the funniest things I discovered from reading the book was that uh, was it Washington D.C. is the highest concentration of of psychopaths per per capita, and in, in, is it in the world or is it just America? Well, it's in it's in the U.S. and you know we can't be certain because the sample sizes are reasonably small, but I, I do love that finding because it does sort of jive with people's suggestions yeah. of where these people gravitate towards. Yeah, well, I mean that doesn't necessarily mean it's the politicians. It could be all their assistants, you know, <laughs> or the lobbyists, or, or the yeah, lobbyists. all sorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it kind of it's it's yeah it's a bit of a magnet for for probably the wrong kind of people. So, uh, what is your assessment of of why? Um, psychopaths and the people with um, those sort of that that dark triad of personality traits. Why why do they get drawn to par in 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 your understanding? Yeah, so the, the dark triad is particularly destructive. It's it's Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy. Being a psychopath, and it, those three in in combination are what's the real problem. Um, Machiavellian narcissistic psychopaths like the idea of being in control and they like the idea of controlling other people and they don't have any problem with abusing other people. They don't have emotional responses like most of us. Now, one of the things that I, I thought was an interesting nuance in talking to these experts on psychopathy and the dark triad more generally was they would say, look, you know, most of us have moments where we become a little bit more narcissistic. There's part, parts of our life where all of a sudden our ego comes to the forefront or we become a little bit more Machiavellian. We'll, we'll, we'll sort of strategize and scheme and maybe break little rules in order to get where we want to be. The difference with people with the dark triad is that they're turned up pretty much all the way, right? They're, they're really high. They're not that they have little doses that sort of come out from time to time. It's that they're sort of always there. And what was also really interesting to me was hearing from all these experts the same sort of line where they said, look, the, the people who can actually control these impulses, they're what are called the functional psychopaths. They end up in business and politics and, and you know, powerful positions. The dysfunctional psychopaths that are so surging with these traits that they can't control them end up in jail because they're the serial killers, right? So uh, what, what's, what's interesting is you, you don't have the actual all the way up guys in power. You have the close to the all the way up uh, guys in, in, in power. Now, for them, you know, 
power and control is a, a really big payoff. But the worry that I have, and this is where, you know, one of the main arguments and one of the main reasons I wrote the book is you have this human tendency, first off, for power-hungry people to seek power. Psychopaths are a special subcategory that's particularly power-hungry and particularly bad at wielding power once they get it. But we design systems that either cater to those people or repel them. And, and the, one of the main reasons I wrote the book was because I was trying to say, like, look, we have designed a system that is uniquely good at getting psychopaths into power because it relies on performances short-term performances like job interviews, promotion interviews, elections, in which superficial charm, which is what psychopaths are notorious for, is a huge asset, right? And, and the flip side of being sort of an introverted person who operates with integrity and doesn't boast, that's difficult to get elected. It's difficult to get promoted because you're constantly being modest and so on. So I think we have to think carefully about the systems we design that either amplify the ability of psychopathic narcissistic Machiavellians into power or, you know, sort of repel them and constrain them more. And, and right now, I think, honestly, I mean, we've done a really good job of designing systems that a superficial, a superficial, charming, chameleon-like personality is particularly good ex at exploiting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the your book went really nicely hand in hand with a with another book I'd read last year um, from um, Isabel Harbin. Uh, it's called mm. Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. So whereas you were looking sort of more on the side of like psychologically, obviously you 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 talk about the systems as well, but she was almost exclusively focused on the systems that give us the politicians that we have in the United Kingdom, at least. Um, and one of the things that I, I, I was curious about while reading both of your books is the extent to which you think the media have a role in sort of promoting that kind of person as as a potential leader or as someone that you think you should vote for you know do do you think that there's um like what what part of that or what 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 sort of extent do you think the media play in in like us picking those kinds of people yeah so i i have a slightly unconventional view of this i think because i think some people will say uh, the media is responsible for this and they're the ones who make, the, they're like the kingmakers and so on, which is partly true. I mean, there, there is some truth to that. But more I think about, you know, let's imagine that you're trying to run for office and you're going to have to go through the media gauntlet. In other words, in order to get elected, you're going to have to get scrutinized incredibly closely and you're going to be in the spotlight all the time. The question of who, who gets through that gauntlet unscathed is a choice that society has made based on what we think is sort of a bad interview or a good interview or a good media performance, bad media performance. To be somebody who shines in the media spotlight, you have to be really affable in these sort of short bursts. You have to be really outgoing, charming. You have to you know, be very slippery at dealing with questions. I mean, one of the things that I, I think about sometimes is like I listen to the radio for uh, today program interviews where they, you know, whenever a government scandal comes out, they throw some sacrificial lamb to be <laughs> just absolutely destroyed on this interview. And the, the, the person just sort of tries to um and ah through the 10 minutes to make sure they don't, you know, get destroyed completely and do their best. Now, there, that creates an incentive in which when you give like a, a normal interview answer, like you actually answer the question, there's huge risks associated with it. There's huge risks associated with being like your normal self because normal people are flawed, right? And so I, I think one of the things, this is where I simultaneously denigrate systems, but also sort of turn the mirror back on ourselves. 
and I haven't talked about this that much, you know, in, in around the book. So it's a great question to, to ponder, but I sort of think, you know, what would it look like to have a world in which normal, well-intentioned, but flawed individuals could ascend to the highest echelons of power? Mm. And I think it would mean that they had to answer questions where they're like, I don't know. Or they'd have to say like, gosh, you know, I have changed my mind on that. And it's not a problem, right? I actually, I, I saw some evidence. And, and so, you know, some of the ways in which media dynamics operate create incentives for politicians to basically either deny answering questions, you know, refuse to answer a question or to lie uh, or to simply put on a face that is obviously false, right? Like it's, it's clearly not actually them. And so I think there's sort of two aspects to it. The easier one to understand is the kingmaker aspect where media, you know, media does respond. And the Trump example is a perfect one for this. We're like, you know, live televising his rallies because they produced good ratings mm. was an unfor- unforgivable choice, in my opinion, uh, especially given that they weren't doing that for the uh, other Republican candidates or for the Democratic candidates at the time. Yeah. So I think you have to be fair and you have to not respond to chasing ratings. But I think you also have to understand that there's this sort of dynamic that we have set up in which, you know, being a human being in the media spotlight is actually potentially destructive for your chances of gaining, gaining higher office until that changes. I mean, I think about this, you know, I don't know if this is the case for you, but I, I've thought about running for office when I was younger mm-hmm. and like when I was like a kid. Right. And I like quickly changed my mind on that. Cause I was like, this is horrible. <laughs> like the whole system is horrible. Everything about it is just a atrocious experience for the individuals unless the power is worth it to you. So for most people, they think like, this is going to be a terrible experience, but at the end, I get the power. Well, those are the people who self-select, and that, that's the problem, right? Everybody who weighs up the costs and benefits and sees the costs but thinks the benefit is power, those are the people you don't want to be in charge. And that's sort of the system we've designed is which those are the ones who are actually going to run for office. Mm. I went on quite the journey there during that answer <laughs> because at the start, I was thinking, Hmm, because you're right about how they, they uh, you're definitely right about how they televise Trump's rallies. Like they would televise a, an empty stage for two hours, like on CNN, just yep. because, uh, you know, because it was Trump. Um, and when you were, you were talking about their sort of chasing ratings, and I was wondering, first off, is like, is this, is this a function? Is it getting worse because the corporate or sort of like the traditional legacy media are, are struggling to hold on to, eyeballs and 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 the audience and i was like is is that what's causing it like maybe the internet makes that better um but then when you talked about the cost i was like nope the internet 100 percent makes it worse <laughs> <laughs> yeah no you know it's a, it's a it's a great question i one of the things that's a joy about being an, an, an author and an academic and not a politician is i can give my honest answer to these questions right i can sort of just reflect on them a bit and one of the things that i've been struck by again it's I think it's a mix of both of these things. So I think that like there are, are de- there are decisions that are made in some media organizations in which they have specific sort of agendas and aims. I mean, you know, looking at Fox News, there, it's quite clear that there is a specific bent to that organization that has a clear narrative line that if you yeah. deviate from it, you might have your show canceled and so on. I think one thing that's slightly different from that in my own experience. So, you know, I, I do some TV interviews in the U S but I also write this column for the Washington post. And one of the things that I found really interesting, and it's not, you know, my, my editor has been really supportive of me writing about a whole bunch of different things. And in fact, has sometimes said, write about the stuff that isn't, you know, the 
obvious clickbait, right? About the stuff that's, you know, might not cater to everybody, but is going to be an important you know, story. But as a writer, you also look at this and you're like, I write about Donald Trump. I get, I look at the comment section, which is a rough proxy for views. Yeah. And there's 2,500 comments, right? So huge amount. I mean, that's a, that's a large amount of, of discourse. You're presuming tens of thousands of people read it if you're getting that many comments. I write about, you know, what's going on in an important area of global affairs that isn't getting much attention to comments, right? And so there's, there's, there's this issue where it's like, on the one hand, you have sort of a, a, an issue with corporate governance of media and all this stuff, but you also have, you know, what do people read, right? I mean, this is, this is the problem with discourse around power is that, you know, I make the point in the book that power is relational. So as much as we hate our leaders, if we live in a democratic society, yes, okay, there's flaws in our democracies and so on. But if we live in a broadly democratic society, we do have to own up to the fact that a significant chunk of the country has elected the people that we hate, mm. right? So yeah. like, there's, there's, this, there's this sort of push and pull between supply and demand when it comes to power uh, that's very, very complicated. I don't think we have enough introspection about why we uh, pick the wrong leaders or why we create a media system in which it's profitable to do things that are potentially counterproductive for democracy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point, actually. I mean, because it's, it's like, it's a, it's a situation where, for example, with the, with the Brexit vote, um, I, I, I saw, I don't know how many people um, throwing around this, this idea of like the liberal elite or, you know, the, the Westminster bubble and, you know, all the, all the people in the big cities don't get it. And that was broadly similar about, about what was happening with, with Trump in a way as well, that, you know, there was a lot of, it was the, that sort of urban rural divide was, was very starkly clear. And I, I didn't quite understand what was what what the, what their point was essentially we're talking about the liberal the liberal media or the liberal elite and then all of a sudden about just around 2019 2020 ish i kind of i just it's, i suddenly got it i was like yeah i understand what you mean now but it took me three years and writing a book about about brexit to to arrive at the point where i'm like yeah you know in in, in a sense it's like, and this isn't to say that like people should be feeling guilty for creating the environment in which, but like everyone is, is like attacking each other, like assuming the worst of the other side. And it means that we all end up in this sort of increasingly fraught state of mind where, yeah, then we just pick the, the wrong person to, to, to lead us because it's like, yeah, well, they'll screw it up or they'll, you know, fix it and that's it, you know, and we don't really think much about it. It's yeah, scary. Yeah. yeah. So how much do you, how much, uh, how much of the benefit of the doubt do you think we should be giving our politicians um, when, when they make a decision that we believe to be harmful or damaging to whatever area that, you know, they're trying to address? Well, you know, I'm of two minds of this because I think that a lot of politicians are in politics for the wrong reasons. I think they are in politics for power. Uh, I think that there's uh, ample evidence that, you know, the, the the political elite is disproportionately uh, less moral, less interested in you know a, a lot of things that that if you took it on a proportionate level, it's, it's probably outliers in the bad way. Um, one of the points I make in the book, and this is less true for places where you have reasonably free societies like the UK and US, 
is that, you know, I, I sort of propose this, this thought experiment of what would you do if you were the dictator of Turkmenistan? You know, it's horribly totalitarian <laughs> environment. And I think a lot of us like to think that we would just be like these just reformers who would do everything properly and, and really effectively. And, and actually, the constraints that are put on people in those systems are such that, you know, if you don't join the dictator's party, like you might not be able to ever make money again. And your family might actually go, you know, to starve or, or become destitute or end up being jailed. Um, if you're the dictator and you don't pay off your generals with bribes, you might get killed, right? I mean, the, the point that I make in the book throughout, and I think this is something that social scientists generally agree on, is that human behavior is situational and context dependent. And as much as we like to think, or, or some of us like to think that there are good or bad people, there are also uh, good people who would behave badly in the right circumstances and bad people who would behave well in the right circumstances. And I think one of the points that I try to really hammer home throughout the book, and, and this is, you know, this gets to your, your, your question about how much benefit of the doubt is, um, accurately diagnosing who are the bad people who are basically impossible to reform and who are the people who are trying their best but are doing bad things because the system is rotten those have totally different remedies. So let's take an extreme on the bad person front. And I, I mean this bad in terms of they're going to do bad things inevitably. Let's take a psychopathic narcissist. Okay. That person is not going to be reformed by little tweaks in the system. You know, a good governance bill is not going to make the psychopathic narcissist all of a sudden uh, an empathic reformer. But if you have someone who is, you know, power hungry, generally well-intentioned, but the system requires you to basically destroy your enemies in order to get to the top so that you can hopefully reform things, well, then a better system might actually yield better results. So, you know, to me, it's about this mix, right? Politics is, is a mix between systems and individuals. And some of the people are basically impossible to fix. And some of the systems are, uh, are, are rotten. And, my best assessment of how we deal with this is you deal with the system as a way of attracting better individuals and also reforming bad individuals as the sort of first point of call and hope that a better system will attract people who are not simply power hungry. And, you know, one of the studies that I love in the book is this study about dice rolls um, that they do with the, these students. They start in India and they, they have these people give 42 dice rolls and then report their own scores. And every time they get a six, they get more money. Now, then they survey the students on what their career aspirations are. And using statistical methods, they can figure out who lied in the dice roll, right? Because if you say you rolled 42 sixes in a row, it's statistically certain that you did not do that, basically. <laughs> so uh, what, what they found in India was that there was a strong correlation between the people who lied on their dice rolls, the dishonest students, to get more money, and those who wanted to enter the civil service where you could extract bribes because India's civil service is not clean. When they did the same study in Denmark, they found the exact opposite results, right? In other words, the clean students, the students who were honest, wanted to go in the civil service because that's an institution that's notoriously free of corruption and graft. So, you know, I, I think that there is a, a lesson to be learned about our political systems that it's a chicken or egg problem, right? Okay, if you have a rotten system, rotten people will apply to be part of it. So, at the same time, if you have rotten individuals in the heart of Westminster or Washington, how do you fix the system? And so this is this is the dilemma that often faces politics is that you have this toxic interplay between bad people and bad systems and fixing them into good people and good systems is, is the challenging bit. And that's why the last third of the book is 10 potential ways of doing that. Mm. Okay. So that, that I definitely, definitely want to talk about because I've been asking 
most of the people I interview for the past two years this question. <laughs> but uh, the, one of the things that I was just curious about there was when you were talking about the 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 woman in from, from India in in Oregon. I was just I, I I was thinking about whether you think that the power and that experience and that ascension to that position of of yeah ultimate sort of control in in a way of of her world do you think that permanently changes people like if if they get there like say because a lot a lot like for for example like a lot of presidents and, and prime ministers they sort of like rehab their image after they you know after they finish their term you know they, they go away for five to ten years and then they come back and they're you know this this happy-go-lucky kind of really chilled out person and and I, I'm always like is that is, is that the person that you are now is that the image you need or does has, has power changed you or are you still fundamentally the same person it was only that situation that made you do the things you did? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll start, I'll, I'll start this uh, answer by talking about non-human primates and then, and then I'll move to a, a former U S presidential candidate. So <laughs> um, one of the interesting things about uh, non-human primates is that you can look at sort of the primate dynamics that we are part of, right? Cause we are primates um, that don't involve culture and systems in the same sort of sophisticated way. So there's might be interesting insights from them. One of the things that uh, I, I studied was I talked to um, an expert on addiction who uses macaque monkeys. And basically what he does, he takes them one, two, three, four. He's got four macaques. They're individually housed to begin with. So they're in these pens where they're all alone. And then they basically lift up the barriers and all of a sudden they form this group of four. And very quickly, the macaques form a dominance hierarchy from one through four. And the researchers can immediately tell the order. And what they then do is once they have the dominance hierarchy, they put these monkeys in a chair that they've been designed to use in which they can pull one lever and get banana pellets and pull another lever and get pure cocaine intravenously injected into their bodies. And what's amazing about this is that the macaques on the top of the hierarchy, the one and two monkeys, they take the banana pellets and the ones on the bottom of the hierarchy self-medicate with the cocaine. Now, if you take the same monkey that took the co that took the banana pellets because it was the dominant monkey and you put it in a new social housing setting and it ends up on the bottom, it switches to the cocaine. So in other words, there's this thing. And the thing that's amazing about this, by the way, is it's not just like behavioral. It's actually neurological. They, they, the dopamine receptors in their brains change as a result of power. Now, they're still malleable, though, because if they go into a new situation, they might have a different behavior. So it's, it's to suggest that perhaps it can change over time. Now, what I would say, though, is that with presidents, for example, you lose power in the sort of formal sense. But like Barack Obama is still extremely powerful, right? He's not the president. But every time he goes into a ask. room. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, but every time you go into a room, you know, and you're Barack Obama, it's like, you are by far the most powerful person there, you know, that you command the room. So I, I talked to this former presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, about a month ago. And, um, and what he said was, he's like, look, on the campaign trail, I had this really weird psychological experience. Every room I walked into, a thousand people would stand up and cheer for me. And then every time I told the joke, everybody would laugh, even if it wasn't funny. And it does something really strange to you, right? Like, this is not a normal experience for a human being to have. Now, Andrew Yang lost the presidential election. He has sort of a political party now that he's trying to push and so on, but he's still like a very influential figure. So that's going to keep happening to him. It might not happen the same way, 
but like it will still be a very unusual situation where you get this deference from people and so on. And it just produces, I think, some really odd psychological effects. So rarely is it the case. Ma Sheila is a, a, an extreme example where she commanded absolute power among this group of people, went to prison, was deported, and then became completely powerless and largely unknown for decades. So she's an interesting case where she seems to have reverted back to sort of a nice person who wasn't power hungry and so on. Whereas most powerful people don't ever actually lose that psychological effect of being powerful. And I think that's the, that's the distinction because a lot of the research I do in the book is about formal power. Like, do you formally occupy a position? Are you the CEO? I don't talk about that much, this idea, but I, I, I still think it's true that there's certain trappings of power that many of these people at the highest echelons of society never really lose. Boris Johnson is for the rest of his life going to be recognizable and he's going to, you know, in certain circles, command significant deference, not from everybody. Somebody might, you know, people <laughs> throw stuff at politicians and so on, but, but it's, it's, it's one of these things where he's going to be a larger than life figure and it will change the way he behaves where he'll never really be a normal average person. again. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you think it's maybe a case of, what with presidents maybe that they still hold that sway and weight and 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 like gravitas and yeah sort of influence without all of the soul crushing responsibility that comes along with you know running one of the biggest countries in the world and the biggest military and you know all the associated yeah problems yeah, so I, I talk about this a little bit in the book in the book on the chapter that's called Power Changes Your Body, How Power Changes Your Body. And one of the things that I find really interesting about this is that there's actually, as I said before, there's the dopamine response that happens in these macaque monkeys with, with uh, cocaine and so on. But there's also biological aging that happens. The weight of responsibility is not some abstract concept. It actually kills you faster. So what's, what's interesting, again, we have evidence from non-human primates and from uh, humans. In the non-human primates, when you look at baboons, all of the baboons at the bottom of the hierarchy are hyper-stressed and are aging faster. They can measure this genetically and they're aging faster all the way up to the top. And then when you get to the very top, that baboon is aging much, much quicker. So in other words, being close to the top is good. You age slower because you have good resources. You have pick of mates, all et cetera. But the alpha male baboon ages really fast because it's such a stressful position to be in where there's always a target on your back. You're, you're never really relaxed. Now, when you look at CEOs, they've used machine learning to study CEOs' faces and CEOs in industries that have a particular time of crisis, like if you're running an airline during a pandemic, yeah. uh, those CEOs age faster. Their faces change faster than, than uh, other, other leaders. And for presidents and prime ministers, there was a study done on heads of state of 200 years of heads of state in 17 countries. And they found that the comparison between the person who lost a presidential or prime ministerial election and the person who won meant that the person who won died 4.4 years younger on average than the person who lost. So I, I said to Andrew Yang, actually, I said, you know, I don't know if it's any consolation to you that you lost, you know, your campaign and it's sort of uh, your presidential aspirations didn't work and your mayoral aspirations didn't work, but you might live longer than the people who beat you. So that's sort of one of the <laughs> consolation prizes you get. Oh, yeah. Um, are you, is that interview somewhere online that people can watch? Yeah, it's a, it's on Andrew Yang's podcast. Um, so we, we sat down last month and it was, it was fun because he's one of these in, individuals where like, you know, often I'm speaking, uh, to people about my book and I, I was like, do you find that what I'm saying is your experience? You know, cause like you just went through this gauntlet of, 
an incredibly weird, and, and he was pretty much unknown before the presidential campaign too. So he's an interesting figure in that regard that he goes from this like never being recognized person who has no name recognition to being one of the most visibly recognized people in the United States. And like, you know, that doesn't, that, that changes your psychology, I think in a very short period of time. And, and uh, so it was interesting. He, by the way, he said to me, and I thought this was one of the insights that I talk about in the book. So I was happy to hear it is he said, you know, you need somebody to tell you you're being an idiot when you're being an idiot. And, and, and this is the thing that a lot of power hungry people don't do to their great misfortune. You know, Boris Johnson's potentially facing this leadership challenge. He needed somebody around him to say, you need to not have these parties. I mean, the fact that he yeah. didn't put in a, a a position where somebody felt comfortable enough to say, you're being an idiot, this is going to hurt you, uh, is a failure of his leadership. Because you have to be self-aware enough to know your failings and then say, I'm going to have somebody who will tell me that I need to do something differently, even if it's going to upset me. And the good leaders do that. The, you know, the, the, the classic example of this is Abraham Lincoln had this thing called the team of rivals, where he brought in people who he hated, basically, to be part of his cabinet because he knew they would argue with him and he figured it would make him make better decisions. And I think that is an insight uh, that very few leaders in the modern world uh, have taken on board. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, do, do you think it's that people people are just scared at that level to, to challenge people? I mean, because not not politics i've not seen this politicians talk about this but i've seen a lot of celebrities talk about this when when someone asks like how do you stay grounded because you know they're they're in a similar position of power maybe not like quite specifically like having all of the levers of government at their hands but they've definitely got like yeah a lot of power in 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 other ways but people who seem to be at least remain level-headed and and not go crazy <laughs> with the fame always seem to say we have friends around us that will say hey that will just like i don't know take the piss out of you like people from northern ireland for example like we 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 couldn't get too far above our station uh, because <laughs> because all our friends would just we'd laugh at each other or we'd make fun of each other or we you know and do, do you think it's a case of once you get to a certain level of of influence or or stature um that people are afraid to say that and and it's maybe isolating and that's why they lose the friends that would say that to them. Yeah. You know, I, so before I became an academic, I worked in politics in the U S I was the, the deputy campaign manager for a campaign for governor mm, in Minnesota, and right? In Minnesota. You're right. Yeah. Well prepared. So <laughs> one of the things, one of the things that I think was interesting about that experience was like the guy I worked for, you know, I think he had several good leadership traits um, but you still, if you're working for someone who is your boss, but also is the candidate, you have to sort of pick your battles, right? You sort of think like, okay, uh, how many times am I going to argue that this person is wrong? And you might find some of the time you think, I think they're wrong, but I don't think it's worth it. So you, you end up, this, this wasn't something that he said, right? He wasn't like, you have to pick your battles. It's just something you internalize. You have to operate in an environment in which you need to be in the good books of someone in order for them to listen to your ideas and so on. So you self-censor sometimes. And I think what good leaders do is they recognize this tendency. There's, there's a massive deferential tendency we have when we're around people who are rich, powerful, famous, whatever it is. And, and it creates potentially toxic dynamics. Now, some leaders, I think, make the mistake of only having their family members be able to be in a position where they can tell them, you know, you're wrong. 
Because the, the unique part about being a family member is, I mean, presumably they're not going to fire you. It's not the same sort of thing. <laughs> but it's not. also a terrible thing to have a, a leader who only has advice that's antagonistic coming from like a spouse, for example. So to, to my mind, good leaders recognize this tendency of power, the sort of built-in deferential character of it. And they tell people, I want you to argue with me, right? Because, and this is this is the thing that I find so so baffling about uh, so much of the systems around power is like, we don't talk about so much of this stuff, right? Like we don't talk about like, what is the environment in which a leader is going to be their best self in terms of making good decisions? What, what, what we end up doing is just sort of saying like, is this person a good or bad politician? And I think, you know, what I wish would happen, and I, you know, this is like the naive author dream is like people who are more influential than I am read the book and start thinking like, what could we do differently about promoting uh, different people in our business? Or how can we design uh, parliament slightly differently to create oversight mechanisms that stop abuse of power? How could we recruit better candidates as labor or conservatives or liberal Democrats to ensure that good people who don't covet power actually sign up to run for, for office? Because the thing that I always wanted to bang my head against the wall while I was writing this is like, I think there are like significantly better ways of doing these things. And all of the discussion is just about these people are awful. Now, some of them are totally awful people, but if you just have the same system over and over and over, like that self-selects for awful people. I mean, you can be annoyed, but you can't really be surprised. And one of the things that's so funny about the way this book has come out in the UK is like, okay, so you know the book release was January 6th in the UK. I mean, Boris imploded basically like three days later. So my publisher was, you know, was pleased about this. Or like the news cycle has, has uh, arrived at the exact same time that there's this massive leadership disaster. And I said, you know, okay, the, the timing is, is fortuitous potentially, but it's also a safe bet, right? I mean, like if it had come out in a month, there'd be another scandal. Yeah. Like this, this isn't something that happens rarely. And so to my mind, we have to think as a society, why is that, you know? And some of it's human nature, but some of it is changeable. And, and to, this is why, again, I think that we have to engineer systems that attract and promote and that better people and then constrain people more effectively once they get power. Mm. Yeah, you're definitely right there. I mean, you wouldn't need to, you wouldn't need to wait long for like a, a scandal surrounding people in power, especially, especially at the minute with the, yeah, yeah. I say, yeah, we've just said what, how we shouldn't call them all awful, but with the caliber of people currently occupying the, the front bench of the Conservative Party, um, it doesn't surprise me. But um, so I, I guess I want to I want to sort of, yeah, spend the rest of the time speaking about what we can do about this, because this is the question that I always have for people. Um, and because it's, uh, yeah, I read I read a lot of books of with fantastic authors like yourself, and they're accurately... Um, diagnosing X, Y, or Z problem in our financial system or our political system or, you know, in society or, you know, in the local economy or you know, loads and loads of different things. And often then I'm like, yeah, they're so right. And they're like, okay, so how do we, how do we make this happen? Uh, and and my, my biggest sort of wonder is, is how we, we break that cycle that you're talking about of, of where we have a, a bad system and it's bringing in the wrong kinds of people. And then, you know, we, we sort of continue that, that, you know, the people who end up being elected into power by that system are not going to turn around and say, hey, well, you know, let's, uh, let's roll the dice and, and see if we, we can get back in. Like, it's the same reason that, for example, 
um, the Labour Party in the UK are, are not very forthcoming with their support for proportional representation, um, even though it's wildly popular with their voters. Um, it's a case of they're not going to dismantle the system that put them there. So how how do you suggest we go about starting to break that cycle? Okay, so I'll, I'll give you a couple uh, different solutions in you know the next few minutes. I won't <laughs> I won't go through all of them. There's there's ten of them in the book, but um, okay. So it's a great question because you know, you don't want to have these sort of pie in the sky ideas that could never happen. That was one of the things that I tried to do is I, I set these up as principles rather than specific policy interventions, but they're things that can actually happen. So the first thing is I think we need to consider creating what I call shadow governance in the terms of like a shadow parliament or shadow boards of directors of companies. And the idea here draws on uh, an insight from ancient Greece in which this device called the claritarian was used to randomly assign citizens to a citizen assembly, sort of like jury duty for government. Now, I don't actually think that's a good idea because in the modern world of 2022, if you're negotiating Brexit policy or a nuclear test ban treaty, the average person on the street is not actually equipped to do that, right? They don't, they don't have the expertise. But what I do think should happen is I think there should be a shadow parliament, for example, of let's say 650 randomly allocated British people uh, to this shadow parliament that makes decisions that are non-binding. In other words, they take the same exact questions that parliament's debating, they take the same exact expert access, et cetera, and then they say, here's what we think should happen. Now, the reason I think this would be so powerful is because first off, it would provide a really nice barometer of what the public actually thought when they spent time thinking about a problem. Hmm. Polls are flawed because they, you know, somebody who's never thought about a problem, should you do this? It's like, okay, yeah, sure. The 650 people would actually be normal representative cross, cross section of the British population that's actually taking the time to think through a problem and then coming up with their best solution. So that's one thing that would be helpful because it would force the politicians to confront the gulf between the two views if they say one thing and the citizen assembly or the shadow parliament says something else. But if there was a nefarious reason why parliament was doing something for a lobbyist or the chumocracy or awarding contracts to Matt Hancock's friends, the citizen assembly wouldn't do that, right? Like they, they, they wouldn't know these people. So they would award contracts based on merit or they would not dole out you know, uh, public benefits to people based on political loyalties because they're not power hungry politicians. So that's one area where this could happen. And, and the thing is, you know, my dream email to receive is some super rich person saying, I love this idea. I'm going to fund it because you don't need the government to do it, right? You, you can just make one. You just, you have to pay people. What you'd have to do is you'd have to pay 650 people a salary for a year to do this and randomly select them. Mm. And that's basically it. And then the, the, the journalists would have to start paying attention to it and actually cover it as though it was a legitimate entity. Now, the other two things that I quickly talk about one also uses the power of randomness, and it's involved with randomized sting operations. So the quick background to this, I interviewed the head of the NYPD's internal affairs unit from about a decade ago who pioneered these things called integrity tests. And basically what they do is like a cop comes into a room where there's allegedly a drugs bust that's happened. And there's, let's say, $20,000 in cash on the table and a bunch of drugs. And they watch what the cop does because there's hidden cameras uh, in this apartment. And if the cop pockets some of the money, you know, they're fired, arrested, whatever it is. But what's fascinating about this is they did 500 integrity tests. And then when they surveyed the police officers in the NYPD, 
12,000 said that they had been subject to one of these sting operations. So in other words, 11,500 had actually encountered real crime scenes that they thought were setups. And the rest of the police force worried that they were about to encounter one. So they mm. all behaved with integrity because they thought this might be a setup. It created this real fear of oversight. And I think for people who are in positions of immense power or power that's prone to abuse, like the police or politicians, some of these randomized sting operations involving, let's say, a fake contractor that tries to get a PPE contract, but is actually a sting operation that has the right connections with lobbyists, mm. that could be a really illuminating thing to do, right? It would, again, make politicians think twice before doing the wrong thing. And the third thing I'll talk about is just something much more simple, which is why do we let politicians self-select into politics? In other words, why do we just wait for people to say, I should be in charge? We should be much more proactive about us saying as a, as a political party or as a, an institution or a department in the police, whatever, hey, that person would be great. Let's recruit them. And I don't think modern political parties spend enough money in identifying and basically headhunting candidates who would be excellent because they've already got a track record of integrity and decency and public service, as opposed to waiting for the person who thinks I could do this, I'd be great at this, and I should be in power to put themselves forward. So, you know, I think those three things are just starters, but they're, they're things that would move the needle. I, one of the things I say in the book is like, none of these are silver bullets. There's never going to be a solution that means that no good people, that, that only good people arrive in positions of power. Hmm. But there will be solutions that make it so that the number of bad people who arrive in power is lower and that those people are further constrained when they get power. So, you know, to me, it's like this interlocking solution where you have to have all these different parts working together to make sure that better people are seeking power, better people are able to get power. And then all the people who end up in power uh, are worried that if they behave badly, there'll be consequences. Mm. And this is, you know, this dovetails with like the Sue Gray report, like, if that report exonerates Boris and he gets away with it, the next prime minister might figure, maybe I could too, right? I mean, accountability really, really does matter. I have several studies in the book that show this, including the one about um, diplomats and parking tickets in New York that I love. But, 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 but the point is, you know, these things are solvable. They're not going to be panaceas that ultimately fix things overnight, but they they can make society better. And I I fundamentally believe that. I mean, that's one of the things like. A lot of the stuff that I write about, like I write about American authoritarianism and the breakdown of democracy, I'm pretty pessimistic about that right now. Right? <laughs> I'm more optimistic over the long run that we can engineer better systems and get better people into power. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I share your optimism um, because oh, I was watching recently. Um, it was the the Elon Musk on Joe Rogan, and the first time he appeared on it, and they were he was uh, Joe Rogan was asking him like, was he optimistic for the future, and he said, well. You kind of have to be, or there's there's no point, you know. Like <laughs> you'd rather be uh, an you'd rather be optimistic and wrong than pessimistic and right, you know. <laughs> it's a much better life that way, I'd say. That's true. <laughs> yeah, um, and you're. I think you're definitely right about about people's um, pursuit of, you know, they they want you to come to the table with the perfect solution with no flaws whatsoever, or it's not worth doing. It's like when when I when I complain to people about um, you know uh, the amount of data that's being like mined by by big tech or uh, the tax havens um, and the, the amount of money going offshore, you know they're always like, oh well, you know there's there's no way you could stop it all. And I'm like, yes, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Yeah, <laughs> completely. Yeah. Um, so, hi. As a as a final question, is there is there 
what's the best way that you would say that people can try and take that and and make some sort of change in their day-to-day life or or something that they can do to try and yeah put this into action a little bit in whatever smaller way it's a great question. So I think that there's two things that I point to. There's there's many more ideas that I that I write about in the book, but two things that I quickly point to. One is to consider actually trying to become powerful <laughs> themselves. In other words, if you can run for your local council, if you're a good, decent person, you know, do something, get involved. That I think is crucially important because there are a lot of people who understandably, and you know, I count myself in, in this group when it comes to running for higher office, et cetera. Uh, see the drawbacks and don't want to do it. But I I think it starts with these little ripples of good, decent people who are willing to take on the burdens of power, even if they don't want it. That's really, really important. The second thing is more practical is, you know, whatever organization you're in has got to have some sort of hiring recruitment practice and promotion practice. One of the things I argue for in the book, which is not feasible in every organization, but is in a lot of them, is trying to push your organization to do anonymous CVs when it comes to hiring and recruitment. So, you know, when I, one of the studies in the book that I found really disturbing uh, was a couple of them, but uh, they're along the lines of these randomized CVs where they're basically like, you take this this chunk of of fictitious CVs that is all made up, and then you randomly assign them names that either sound like they're from an ethnic minority or they're white, or they either sound like they're a male name or a female name. And the exact same qualifications get different rates of interviews and different rates of callbacks for recruitment. So this is one of the reasons why in the grading I do for my students at UCL, everything is anonymized. I have no idea who I'm grading. Mm. And it's good because you know sometimes students annoy you and you, you, know, you dislike them and you can't punish them if it's anonymous, which is great, right? And you can't reward them if you like them because it's just fair. It's supposed to say, I have no idea whose essay I'm grading and that's, that's a better system. So it's a small thing potentially, but creating fairer systems in the pipelines to power has society-wide effects because the people who make it in business, they end up going into politics. The people who do well in school because of anonymized you know, grading, if that's fair, it's a better pipeline where it's not just the eaten educated people who end up in, in power. So you know, I think there's lots of different things people can do. These are just very small starting aspects. But you know, as I say, there's lots of different principles in the book that people can check out. Yeah. So of course, um, everyone, please go check out the book, Corruptible. I noticed it's in your background as well, um, <laughs> sitting on the shelf. Um, the shameless self-promotion. Yeah. Indeed. Well, I mean, you've, you've got to, <laughs> right? That's that's the that's what you're there for. I mean, I, 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 I'm, yeah, I'm going to have to go back on book tour at some point once my book is finally finished. But <laughs> uh, yeah, Brian, I, I really, really want to thank you um, both for writing the book, for sending me a copy and uh, for, for the interview. It's been been really great and i learned a lot so thanks for everyone for listening thank you thanks for having me no problem